This is Museum People, a podcast that celebrates individuals connected with the museum field by highlighting their work, passions, opinions, and personalities. In each episode, you'll hear stories and viewpoints from a variety of museum people, unsung workers to executive directors, volunteers to trustees, as they help change the world one visitor at a time. And now, the hosts of Museum People, Dan Yeager and Marika Van Dam. Hey, museum people. Hey, Dan. Hi, Marika. Here we are. Another episode. I love this interview that you did out at the Spelman Museum of Stamps and Postal History. I love it for so many reasons. Mm. Um, Where do I even begin? One, I love it because I love writing letters. I'm (laughs) a letter person, and I am very particular about my stamps, which is so funny because I am not a stamp collector. Mm. And if you accused me of such, I would say... That's an insult to my person. I mean, I don't collect them, but I spend. Well, what? What do you? First of all, what do you write, and what kind of stamps? I send cards for birthdays and major occasions. I also, uh, since their birth, have been sending postcards a few times a month to my nieces and nephews. Mm-hmm. Anytime I go to a museum, I will get the postcards and I will send those out. And yeah. so those are very special. But I love to shop for stamps. I think they're beautiful, and they've become so wonderful and great and now with the forever stamps it's easier to use them <laughs> and i yeah. love them so much and my mom will always say like you know, i always look at your envelopes because i know that the stamp is special and it means something yeah. like i wrote her a thank you note for an event that we went to the family reunion in washington dc a couple years ago and mm-hmm. i and i had a march on washington stamp and she she could notice that or um, when i send a note to the nema staff and i put a wonder woman sticker on it it means something <laughs> Marika, I am really interested in niche museums. I don't want to call them quirky because uh, some people refer to them as quirky museums, like in the media, and that, that's yeah. a little bit... That's kind yeah, of insulting. Yeah, a little bit insulting, you know. But there's so many really interesting places. At, Marika, we got to get interviews with, for example, the Plumbing Museum in Watertown. Get it? That's <laughs> 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 like... Uh, and... Uh, there's an umbrella cover museum on Peaks Island in Maine. And I thought this is a total, right? I mean, just a total goof. Yeah. And the person, though, that runs it is named Nancy Three Hoffman. Her middle initial is three. Okay. I met her. She came to one of my workshops at one point, And she's like really interesting and really entertaining. And she's really into it. Mm-hmm. Umbrella covers, you know, those little things that when you buy the umbrella, sure. you throw it away. Yeah. <laughs> she collects them from all over the world. People are really into it. You know, we need to, all right, so museum people, <laughs> listeners, you need to write in to us. Go to the go to the website and tell us what is your favorite niche museum. There have got to be a million of them out there. Spelman Museum is one of those, I think. That being said, the niche museums like Spelman Museum, I really wonder what their future is because there is, you know, everybody thinks they've got troubles. Places like this have a lot of challenges. Yeah, I, I, I know. I worked for a small museum that uh, I didn't think should exist. Yeah. When it was hard, I was running it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that's, that's a good way to get up <laughs> every day in the morning. Right. I was just like, wait, why are we doing this? 
I think so many museums are built originally on a bright idea of some kind. Somebody's a glimmer in somebody's eye. They're a collector. They do certain things, and they think that, you know, boy, I need to start a museum. And this is, and it might be a political entity. Hey, we need a museum in this town, or we have this old house. Let's turn that into yep. a museum. You know, just. But there's not much thought towards how are we going to sustain this? Who's going to come to this thing? Who's going to put money into it? Who's going to support it? The Spelman Museum sort of falls into the category of being a club, uh, very honestly. And that's not uh, to disparage them at all, but it's, you know, uh, certainly is a challenge. And I know this because I was, the museum I worked for as a director was something like that as well. So basically a club means that the core group of supporters are enthusiasts for whatever it is you are displaying but very often those enthusiasts are really focused on the collections maybe to a degree the programs that you have around the collections but they're really not effective at thinking about the institution as a whole and its sustainability that's what i've found and yeah. that creates some real challenges well it sounds like you had a great interview out at spelman museum yeah and this was a little different too i actually carried the mic and got a tour and he was taking me around the collection a little bit, telling cool. me a little bit about it. So anyway, we'll, we'll have awesome. the, the virtual tour right now at the Spelman Museum of Stamps and Postal History. Talking with George Norton, curator of the Spelman Museum of Stamps and Postal History. And uh, George, where are we right now? Uh, we're in the main gallery of the museum. Uh, we're one of uh, two principal museums in the country that are focused primarily on stamps and postal history. There are collections in other universities and uh, venues, but uh, in terms of a unified and focused collection, uh, we're we're one of two, the other being the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And so what is Cardinal Spellman's connection with this? Uh, Cardinal Spellman was a lifetime collector of, of stamps. Uh, he was introduced to uh, stamp collecting when he was in seminary in Rome. Cardinal Spellman was born in Whitman, so he has local roots. Uh, during World War II, he was the military vicar of the United States Armed Services. And people knew of his stamp collecting interests, so they would give both individuals and governments would give him uh, collections uh, and material for his uh, his holdings. Uh, it grew rather large, so he had a, uh, a stamp secretary you know, that she chose from the um, uh, religious order of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Boston. And uh, she uh, looked after his collection for many years and uh, later became the first executive uh, director of the museum. We're located on the campus of Regis College, which was a uh, higher education uh, facility established by the Sisters of St. Joseph of Boston. So that's why the common common history. Th through Cardinal Spellman's efforts, a substantial amount of money was uh, donated to build a separate uh, museum for, for stamps and postal history. And once it was completed, he donated his collection 
along with the holdings of the National uh, Philatelic Museum uh, in Philadelphia, and they became the core of the museum's holdings. Subsequent to that, we've had uh, generous donations from many, many donors, both private and public. We have President Eisenhower's collection here, Matthew Ridgway, uh, Theodore Steinway, who was a, a very well-known collector and obviously the uh, head of the Steinway Piano Company in New York, and many, many other uh, very generous donations. Why don't you show me around a little bit then? We show uh, the examples of the very first postage stamp of the world. It's called the, the Penny Black. Uh, the stamp as an invention, uh, as a new concept, uh, uh, originated in Great Britain, and it was part of a larger postal reform in which uh, the idea was to um, prepay the postage. Up until that time, when people mailed the letters, the postal clerk would write the amount of postage on the letter, and then that postage was collected from the recipient. Uh, the idea was to prepay the postage and to show that uh, the uh, postage had been prepaid. Uh, you bought one of these sticky labels, which we call a postage stamp today. These are examples of the actual stamps from 1840. It was sold for a penny apiece, and it pictures a very young Queen Victoria. She'd been Queen of England only three years at that point in time. And along the edge of the sheet of stamps, it uh, explains where to put the stamp on the envelope and not to lick it too much because you lick the glue off the back and uh, the uh, stamp wouldn't stick. What, what an innovation. You know, you can imagine actually paying for the postage of all your junk mail today, right? <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. And uh, what else do we have then in this gallery? Uh, on the other uh, side of the aisle, we have an exhibit of the Boston Post Road, which I consider uh, America's first information highway. And we trace the history of the Post Road from Indian trails uh, right up through 1920 when people had leisure time and could take to the road and uh, the road, many of the roads being the uh, Boston Post Road. And uh, we try to put in context showing not only how mail was carried, but other information. Uh, newspapers, of course, were very important during colonial times and spreading the word up and down the East Coast. Uh, we show the uh, advances in uh, and innovations in transportation, how people got their mail, and a little bit about the mail service in each uh, town that the post road went through, and uh, a, a lot of the cultural, economic, uh, and social uh, impacts that uh, mail had uh, along the Boston Post Road. So you have uh, international stamps. I trust you have uh, some uh, U.S. stamps as well? Yes, we have a, a very comprehensive collection of both United States and worldwide stamps, as well as uh, collections of what we call postal history that show how and why mail was, was carried, the postal markings, and the significance. Uh, we change our uh, exhibits uh, continually through the year, at least three or f uh, three to five uh, major uh, gallery changes in our main gallery here. At the present time, uh, we have a uh, extensive collection on what we call the Road to the White House, uh, it being a presidential election year and also a special exhibit on presidential inaugurations. And through the use of stamps and postal history, we're able to tell the story of how, uh, how our president is, is elected and uh, the various uh, traditions that have grown up uh, over the years. What do people generally ask for here? What's the most popular stamp or popular exhibit? 
quite often they'll ask, what is the most valuable stamp? And uh, Does it always boil down to dollars and cents? Well, quite often it does. To me, as a, as a, as a curator and, and associated with museums, uh, I, I have the care of all of the objects in the museum. So whether they're worth 10 cents or $100,000, I still have to account for and care for them uh, uh, equally. So in terms of monetary value, uh, not so much. What's your favorite one? Uh, probably uh, the favorite collection, I think, would uh, I would have to say is a, a topical collection formed by Theodore Steinway. Uh, he collected every stamp that related to music at the time, which was the late 1940s. And uh, it's an extraordinary collection because it, it is mounted and uh, on special pages that have the gold crest of the uh, Steinway Piano Company. Uh, it was all hand-lettered. And on each page, there are musical excerpts. It's a work of art as well as, as a treasure, and includes uh, such uh, objects like there was a letter written by Franz Liszt to one of his pupils recommending that the pupil buy a Steinway piano, and with it is a signed autographed picture of Franz Liszt and the envelope that it was actually uh, mailed in. Uh, so little objects like that, uh, to me, are unique, uh, have great not only uh, philatelic uh, and postal history significance, but really uh, show the context and the importance of postal communications and, and the use of stamps. It's remarkable standing here in this gallery showing the road to the White House. You can trace the history of the United States through its postal stamps, I suppose. Yes, definitely, and with with other countries too, because the uh, within a space of one square inch, the uh, artist has to convey uh, uh, an idea or celebrate a person, a place, or an event uh, in a very economical uh, way. And uh, it's a way of countries uh, throughout the world to uh, convey their, the finest and best of their, their culture, their stamps, uh, their politics, their scenery, the technological advancements uh, over the years. What's the process of getting a stamp actually published? There is a citizen stamp advisory committee that meets periodically throughout the year that receives ideas for postage stamps to commemorate a person, a place, or an event, and they decide on uh, particular uh, stamp designs that they would like to see, and then it's referred to artists uh, who, who do renderings, and then it's ultimately up to the United States Postal Service to approve that idea and go into production. So any, anyone who has an idea of uh, what they would like to see uh, pictured or commemorated or celebrated on a stamp is, is free to uh, send in their ideas to the uh, Citizens Advisory Committee, and they'll, uh, they'll take it from there. It seems that there are more and more stamps that are forever stamps and sort of generic. And Is that a fact, or is that just my perception that there are fewer commemorative, beautiful stamps out there and more of the you know, standard thing? Well, it's it's your perception and uh, probably mine also. Uh, obviously, it somewhat can be a somewhat of a subjective matter, but it's it's constantly a matter of conversation among both stamp collectors and the public as to the appropriateness of uh, some of the stamps that the uh, the postal service uh, comes up with and sells. Here's a here's a stamp dress. Explain this to me a little bit. Okay. One of the interesting objects in our uh, special exhibits gallery of, of many three-dimensional objects uh, related to stamps and postal history is an American stamp dress. 
this was uh, designed and uh, created by a, a professional uh, dressmaker in uh, New York in the mid-1930s. And uh, it has a uh, linen base uh, and uh, a skirt and blouse. And pasted on it are used actual used postage stamps. These are actually stamps. They're not prints of stamps. No, these are the these are the real thing, and uh, it it has a very uh, ornate uh, eagle and uh, shield uh, patriotic uh, symbol. Uh, it's a size two dress, and uh, I knew the woman who who wore it a few times uh, before it was donated to us. Yeah. I am looking at the very first postage stamp in the United States. Ben Franklin, I see. Why don't you tell me a little bit about this, George? It wasn't until 1847 that the um, United States issued its first general uh, United States postage stamp. There were two stamps issued at that time, one a five-cent stamp featuring Benjamin Franklin, our, one of our first postmasters, and a 10-cent stamp featuring George Washington, our first president. When was the first stamp that featured someone besides a famous, powerful white guy? Ah, that's, that's quite a challenge. Uh, there was a uh, the United States uh, in the in the nineteen eighties started a, a a Black Heritage series of mm-hmm. of, of stamps featuring uh, famous uh, 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 African Americans, uh, and there have also been uh, stamps uh, uh, celebrating. Uh, Arctic explorers and other other folks uh, kind of behind the scenes uh, and highlighted. Wow. So it wasn't until the 80s and that we sort of didn't celebrate the, the traditional? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, things change slowly, right. I suppose. And uh, so now I'm with uh, David Ball, who's the operations manager here at the Spelman Museum. And um, David, tell me a little something about the organization itself. It's on the campus of Regis College, but it's not formally part of Regis College. Is that right? Uh, The Spelman Museum, uh, which started in 1963, uh, is independent of Regis, uh, but we're proud to be aligned with Regis. Uh, A number of the the people on our board of trustees are Sisters of St. Joseph. And they've uh, they've been a bedrock for for uh, for this museum, and it's the oldest museum of its kind in the country. Mm. What are some of the challenges then with running a place like this? I mean, stamps really are a niche market, I'm sure, for the folks that come in here. Like, uh, they, are they all stamp collectors coming in? Well, it turns out that most of them aren't. You know, stamps of uh, stamp collecting has evolved over time. It used to be. Uh, one of the predominant avocations for people. I mean, hmm. when President Roosevelt collected stamps, lots of Americans collected stamps. And, and I think before uh, television and the internet and email, uh, it was a lot more prevalent. And, and I, well, for me, I mean, I, I was introduced to stamp collecting by, by my mom. I mean, I think it's one of those things that gets passed down from generation hmm. to generation. What do you think it is about stamp collecting that's so appealing to people? I don't know. When you talk to when you asked President Roosevelt, you know, he he had all these things on his plate and he's trying to run World War II and run the country. And uh, he said that it was it was kind of a it was an ocean of calm for him when Mm. when he would uh, when he would, for example, uh, be taking an ocean liner to go off to a conference. He would have a steamer trunk and it would be full of his stamp albums. Mm. And it was an opportunity to kind of reset yourself to, to to sit and to do something contemplative and cerebral and uh, and to enjoy. Mm. 
How big is the stamp collecting community in the U.S.? It's large, but it's it's nowhere near as large as it used to be. It's it's kind of uh, trailing off. And, and I think one of the things that, that we want to encourage is we want people that are younger to get involved. And the visitors come from all over, or is it principally local? Most of our uh, visitorship is is fairly local and, and, and regional, uh, though uh, we do have visitors from all all around the world. They that know about us, or they have seen some of the uh, traveling exhibits that we've sent out to major stamp shows, both nationally and internationally. Where do your supporters uh, come from? Uh, museum people always want to know about where's the money coming from, because it's the number one complaint. Do you have a lot of support through philanthropy, or do you get grants, or does Regis uh, support you in some way? Our support comes from lots of different places. Uh, we've, we've received grants in the past. Um, many of them are, are educationally based. And some of the, some of the income uh, comes from donations, either annual giving. Uh, we have a, a, about 350 members currently who are have are paid up with their dues. Um, people will also donate their collections. You know, they may have someone who they had an uncle who collected stamps, but they don't know anybody who does. So, how do you handle collections here? Do you have like a collections plan, uh, sort of items that you really would love to have? Uh, what number one thing? is on your wish list? Is there like a Honus Wagner 1926 <laughs> baseball card? Uh, not, not really. Uh, one, one of the uh, fascinating things that I've discovered over the years uh, in terms of looking through material that's brought to us for donation and through my work at, in evaluating collections is, is finding a, um, a particular stamp or most usually a, an envelope that uh, has a has a wow factor in terms of uh, the story behind it. Uh, I'm lo- looking so much for items of great monetary value. Uh, to me, the items of most value and significance are ones that tell tell a, a great a, a great story. I know from experience that whenever you deal with collectors of any sort, whether they be stamp collectors, I'm sure art collectors. Uh, even history buffs, there uh, are a lot of passions and a lot of uh, sometimes friendly arguments, sometimes not so friendly. What are the what are the things that you hear? Are you kind of the arbiter of certain disputes that are happening in the stamp collecting field these days? Uh, yes, that uh, that undercurrent comes to the surface from time to time. What are the issues? <laughs> well, one of the the current hot topics. Uh, is the uh, adhesive on on current stamps? People argue about adhesive. Yes. <laughs> well, they they argue about whether you collect the stamps with the adhesive uh, still on them, or the uh, the self adhesive uh, stamps, or if it's a used stamp, how do you get the stamp off of the envelope? The collectors do they argue about valuation? I know that a lot of times it's very competitive in auctions for art and that type of thing, and sometimes museums are brought into the picture. Yes, this is uh, you. You raise a, a, another very. Um, common point of uh, discussion and uh, disagreement uh, among among collectors. There are objective factors, certainly, but there are also some subjective factors. And uh, if you own the stamp and get a lower grade than you think it uh, should be, uh, there, there, there uh, can be some uh, uh, both disagreement and disappointment. So in your opinion, in the big picture, 
What is the future of the U.S. Postal Service, and therefore, what is the future of the postage stamp in this country? Uh, over the last three or four decades, there have been many uh, projections that the postage stamp is obsolete and on its way out. The reports of the demise of the postage stamp were have been greatly exaggerated, and uh, there are many millions more sold and used every day. Uh, I foresee it at least in the in the in the both short and medium term future uh, uh, people will still use postage stamps so you don't think that the postal service is itself is in any grave danger it's uh, sustainable i I do uh, certainly there are economic challenges and uh, those are are, are both real. Uh, from a practical point of view, but also uh, exacerbated by political decisions and uh, political choices. So it's a continuing conversation that uh, uh, the United States will, will, will need, need to conduct in the, in the years ahead. Dan, what an interesting place. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's a niche place. It uh, They have copies of the first stamp in the United States. They've got a stamp dress, a dress that's made of stamps there. It's like everything possible to do with stamps. They're very enthusiastic about it. Of course they are. That's great. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting about these these small niche museums. It, it, just, it seems to be, like you said, just the club. It's a few people devoted to it. Mm. And having worked at many small organizations, uh, I just I'm exhausted for them. Yeah, I know what that's like. Well, you know the thing about it is that museums are going to survive as long as they've got support. And when they don't have support, they're going to go out of business. And and I always ask the question: If you went out of business, who would shed the most tears? I mean, that's your core support. And if the answer is nobody, or even worse, we don't know. Uh, you know, then it's yeah. sort of like, okay, the handwriting is on the wall. Everybody wants young people. They, they're they dying for young people to be involved. <laughs> I think that's interesting. We all want young people. Yeah, where are those young yeah, people? They're, not shoveling, they they're not shoveling driveways for sure. <laughs> like, they're not hiking, remember? Right, yeah, they're Becky's not hiking. Episode? Yeah, they're not hiking. They're not shoveling driveways. Where are they? There's no longer Pokemon Go. But yeah saying that we want more young people is never never the right answer you really have to craft a strategy and understand why and how you're going to bring those folks in and maybe they should recruit some young people who like stamps to help them figure that out well but honestly right why would any young person want to come and volunteer for a historical society why that's, yeah. a, that's a real question uh-huh. i think um because you have access to some really interesting information um the objects are great people want to connect with that kind of stuff young people also want to help we talked about in our episode with brian Mm -hmm. um, about civic engagement young people do want that and of course they many want something in return they want to have an internship or they want to have something for their resume that's all fine we can handle that Um, i think our problem is that we talk about young people as though there's like this huge 
pool of people, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, we want any young person. The thing is, like, young people in general aren't really going to be involved in a historical society probably because it's just not their bag. How many kids are interested in history? But the right ones are definitely going to be, right? You know, and that's where... You know, we heard from Deborah. She's got middle schoolers running around her museum helping out. And, you know, I mean, you, you, you find the right right ones, the ones that are into history and whatever. I think it's a matter of just making sure that you get out there. Those you, school visits are kind of cool as entry points, though, because I think some kids' imaginations get excited. Yeah. Of course. And what about if some young people gave tours of the, the Postal Museum? Yeah, right. That would be fun. Yeah. Just to get a young person's perspective hugely helpful but that goes back to when we were interviewing our nima yeps and they said get young people on your board Mm -hmm. and then there will be a voice a young person voice do you know if they have any deaccessioning that they have to do the the way they put it is that part of their philanthropy is people offer them their collections with the understanding that they're going to take out the choice items and then sell the rest of the items. Mm. So I don't know what the ethics are with something like that. In a sense, it's not deaccessioning if you don't accession it, right? It is true, as long as you're clear with the donor. Right. But it's, it's just interesting when you, you know, these these guys have uh, some funding troubles and your first, your first question is, well, what do they got that they can sell? Right. And, but that's really sad too, because you wouldn't want that stamp to go into private hands where people couldn't enjoy the first stamp or a dress made of stamps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but George mentioned that they actually, as uh, fundraisers, do basically an antique roadshow type of thing every now and again. They will appraise collections. Is that something that ever comes across your desk uh, in any of your experience where you as a museum are actually... Uh, valuing certain items and giving that I find that yeah I find that very dicey Um, so at a place I volunteered at a historic place that was not a museum but was a historic place with a collection that prided itself on that they there would be space rented to antiques dealer in the building as a source of income okay sure um, but what, unless your collection is very well documented, that's a blurry line. It can mm-hmm. go, you know, it, it can be very dicey. Um, was be- the antique dealer speaking on behalf of the museum or nope. the implication was that nope. the museum was... And like people didn't even know about that. And I was like, okay, you know, after a certain amount of years in the field, your ethics start to slide a little mm-hmm. bit when reality sets in. Mm-hmm. And so by that point I was like, okay, I can, I can see where this is okay. And, you know, we can document this and make feel okay about it. However, there would be these appraisal days on the lawn where people would bring their stuff from the community and then these antiques people would appraise them. And Mm -hmm. it just, something about that didn't sit right with me. Um, First of all, it puts a value on objects in a collection. Of course, they have monetary value, but they have other kinds of value that museums um, strive for. Mm -hmm. And there would also be these instances where the antiques folks would like put stuff out on the curb when they were like, actually, we don't want this. And yeah. it was, so this antique on the curb of this 
place that is historic. It's a museum. And I, know, I was it like, looks oh like dear. Right. Yeah. It's like one day my husband's driving the opti- by. The optics yeah. aren't so great. So Kurt's like, oh, I saw that this desk outside of the blankety blank house. And I was like, oh man. <laughs> like right. I had to go and I was like, just put it in the car and <laughs> right. just take yeah. it out of here. There's a lot of dicey ethics issues in there especially once something gets into the museum it has an elevated status right mm-hmm. yeah it was and if you deaccession it it still reta- retains that status and that's yeah. something you have to watch out for too yeah it's tricky yeah people don't know that there's all this going on in museums aam spends a lot of time going over collections policies and pronouncements and what's ethical and what's not and and, and it all just seems very academic in some ways but in a small museum collections are fluid they're very organic there's a lot of emotional decisions behind what do we do with this type of thing we have to have this or we don't want this and um, small museums live so close to the bone that's why some of the deaccessioning guidelines and whatever kind of you know they're they're moot in many cases because if you don't convert this thing to cash we're going to go out of business and that's that's a real temptation to a lot of a lot of museums But I know it gives us all a black eye if it happens. It's all very complicated. Mm. The museum world is changing, and sometimes our guidelines are not keeping up. We need to have an in-depth collections conversation on museum people, I think, at some point. Okay. I'd love that. Maybe. Well, you're a collections person, I am a collections person at heart. Yeah. Dan, I'm optimistic about the Postal Service. I think they're going to be doing okay. I mean, for one, Amazon helped out, right? (laughs) How did Amazon help out? Well, you can buy stuff online. You have to ship it. Oh. So you need that service All right, so aside, until drones take over. Yeah, I right. Guess, I'm but, so right. But also, well, aside aside from the package that you've ordered and junk mail, what kind of mail do you get anymore? I get well. I'm an exception, I think, because I I do get a fair amount of mail, and I have friends who still write me letters. <laughs> who are you, Emily Dickinson? Um, <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, but also, I'm a fundraiser, so yeah. I firmly believe in the power of a handwritten note. Oh heck yeah! For right. all I know occasions. that. Well, I I send a lot of congratulations notes and thank you notes, so that's nobody can right. read them. I guess nobody can read them. Right. Um, but it's nice that you do it. So that I think will help. But I also wonder if this um, this new activism that is sweeping America where we're all encouraged to write to our senators or any number of politicians expressing our views on a postcard. That might help the Postal Service. Who knows? Well, we wish the folks at the Spelman Museum all the best. Hopefully yeah. we take a field trip out there. Absolutely. The Spelman Museum and all of our niche museums around the world. You keep us special, special and unique. Well, what do you think? Call it a day? I think we've said our piece. Thanks for <laughs> listening, everyone. You're very kind. <laughs> Thank you, museum people. Till next time next time on Museum People. I found it moving and inspiring and bananas, and I wondered if there was a way to tell a story like that. Surely for an organization like the Met, she must have faced some naysayers. Are you creating art or are you interpreting? I want to share. There's something very sort of welcoming and open-hearted about the whole thing. Museum People is a production of the New England Museum Association, which connects, inspires, and empowers cultural institutions to provide their communities with deep and authentic experiences. Have an idea or comment for Museum People? Go to nemanet.org slash museumpeople to provide feedback, get information about episodes, and learn how to subscribe. Thanks for listening. 